Amen. Amen. How you doing today? Good, good. And then I just heard like a general, I don't know what that was. How many of you um, remember, okay, so this is probably people my age and older, uh, around my age, so old people. Um, How many of you remember the uh, Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby? (laughs) How many of you don't remember that? Um, it's, I don't even know where you would get it. I think you'd have to buy like the VHS tapes of that, that old show. But I loved that show when I was growing up. My favorite superhero was the Incredible Hulk. I, uh, I thought he was so much better than any of the other, you know, so-called superheroes, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, or any of those guys. I, I loved the Incredible Hulk. And, uh, I loved that the old show because... It was real, like you had you know, this transformation, Bill Bixby, you know, this puny little guy, and he was so, like, soft-natured and stuff, and then somebody would, like, harass him, and he'd get mad, and he was like, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, and, uh, and all of a sudden, his eyes open, and his, they're turned green, right? Remember this? And then... All of a sudden, you start to see his shirt rip and his pants rip, and then all of a sudden, you got Lou Ferrigno with a terrible wig on, and he just tears that shirt off, and it was like he was a real, like, like a human being, not like the CGI stuff with the, you know, the, uh, the Avengers and all that. Like, that's fake. Like, you know that's fake. Like, he's 10 feet tall, and he's all... This is a real person, and man, he would just... It was like this... This weird, like, superhero who was out of control, but he had, like, this direction. He only beat up the bad guys. Even though he, like, had, like, no awareness of, like, seemed like what he was doing. He was always fighting the bad guys. And it was uh, this interesting thing because I think that superhero is a modern-day telling of this old story of Samson in a way that he didn't have to turn green and he wasn't powered by rage and gamma rays. He was this person that the Holy Spirit had filled and empowered, but he had this incredible strength to do all these amazing things. And we look at Samson, and I think, you know, why he's part of this lie detector series is because we don't always understand some of the characters of the Bible, some of the stories of the Bible, what, what's going on, uh, what God's trying to reveal to us through them. And Samson, he, he tends to be a heroic figure, right, that we look at and we love his story, and, but he's not really much of a hero. He is a little bit more like the Incredible Hulk where he goes in and it's kind of like he's like just barely aimed at the bad guys, but he just goes in, he blows things up, and, but his character and his, his, uh, his morality and, and his devotion, his understanding of himself is, is kind of off. And here's what I want you to understand is that when you're looking at people in the Bible, stories in the Bible, you know, different things that happen in Scripture, 
sometimes we get um, a little bit confused because we're focused on the wrong thing. We think that Samson's the hero. He's not the hero of the story. Who's the hero of the story? God's the hero of every story in Scripture. And you have people that sometimes they are more obedient, more faithful, um, and better examples. Sometimes you have cautionary tales. I think Samson's more of a cautionary tale. I actually am going to call him an antichrist. And I'm just using that for shock value. But he's, he, he's an antichrist because he could have been so much better. He could have been so much more than what he was, but he missed his calling. And so we focus on him as a person and we try to figure out what the moral of the story is and we're missing that God is, is the, the hero of the story. And so what we're going to look at, we're going to look at Samson. We're going to try to understand what it is about him that God is trying to say to us about his continued activity in our lives. What does is, what is his life tell us about our life? Okay, so let's stand as we read uh, Judges 13, 1 through 7. Judges chapter 13, 1 through 7 says, And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There is a certain man of Zorah, the, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I, I did not ask him where he came from. He did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we pray for your spirit to give us insight, wisdom, understanding, application, power uh, to know what it is that you're speaking to us about, what it is that you're calling us to do. Uh, your spirit empowered Samson to do some mighty things, Lord. We, we pray for that same spirit uh, to give us a strength, Lord, in ourselves that is just as awesome, just as mighty, just as powerful, just as um, amazing, Lord, that we would have the ability to, to know you, the ability to shine uh, the light of Christ, Lord, in our lives to other people, the ability to defeat sin and wickedness, Lord, and uh, the ability to serve and honor, the, the ability to overcome. Uh, Lord, you give us all these things. You convict us of, of where we're wrong. You empower us to do what's right. You show us the, the truth of, of who you are, God. You do all these things for us by your grace, by your mercy, because uh, you love us. You care for us, Lord. We thank you for that. We, we pray that we would honor you in it, Lord, that we would learn uh, more from your word today, um, that we would understand more today than we have, and give you glory for what you're going to do and say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the period uh, that we're looking at here is the period of the judges. Uh, there was a time in, in Israel's history 
that was what we call ideal, okay? They had just come into the promised land. Joshua had led them in. We all know the story of, of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and, and the Jewish people came in and they began to take the, the land to uh, possess it, to own it. Uh, and God was with them in a powerful way. That whole generation came into the land of Israel. They followed the, the Lord. They, they followed the law. They were devoted to the Lord. Their parents had disobeyed God. Okay, their parents uh, had uh, been given the promised land, told that they could come in and take it, and they, they were too afraid. They saw the land. They, they thought that they would be defeated, and so they did not trust the Lord. God said, okay, they'll wander in the desert for 40 years, and then your children will inherit the land that you didn't uh, find yourself worthy enough to possess. And so this, that generation came in, and God blessed them. And whenever God was uh, working in their life, they were, they were obedient. They were following the Lord. God would give them protection. He would give them provision. And then something weird would happen. Like the next generation saw the blessing of their parents, and then they... They did not continue with their parents' faith. They would turn away, and they would worship idols, and they would disobey the Lord, and they would not follow the law, and then God would give them over to their enemies, and, and they would uh, be attacked. They would be, uh, they would be in poverty. There would be drought. There would be all kinds of plagues and famines and problems and over and over and over, and then they would cry out to the Lord, and he would deliver them. And I say, well, that, that doesn't sound like an ideal time, right? But it is. In, because it's a theocracy. The period of the judges is the only time in the history of the world where a nation was ruled by God as the king and the ruler and the leader of a nation. The only time in history, the only country in history that had this unique thing about it. God said, I'm the king of your land and you have the freedom absolute freedom, as long as you follow the law. The law of the land was the law of God. They didn't have a civil law and a religious law. It was just the law of the Lord. And God was the king, and they had the freedom to follow or to disobey. And as they followed, what would happen is when they obeyed and trusted and did what the, the law required, God would just bless them. He would provide for them. He would protect them. And they had no problems. And, and so you think, well, if you see this happening over and over and over again, and you know that absolutely when we trust the Lord that he protects us and he blesses us, why would you ever turn away from that? Doesn't it seem weird? Like, what's going on? Why, why if it's so obvious and so apparent that when we follow the Lord, he's with us, when we're with him, he's with us, why would you turn from that? It doesn't seem to make sense, but there's something in human nature that every single person has, which is that we have a little bit of pride where we, when we get blessed by God, we begin to take it for granted. We think that I've, I've done it. This is because I'm smart, because I'm strong, because I'm good, because I deserve it, because this is just is all the work that I've put into it. I'm a hard worker. I'm Somehow I have moral superiority. I have ethnic superiority. I have some kind of physical superiority. That's why, why I'm being blessed so much is because of what I've achieved. And this is what God said to Moses to tell the people that they would do this over and over. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you all these things. And what's going to happen is over time, you're going to think that you did this yourself and then you're going to turn away from me. And when you do, I'm going to discipline you. And when I discipline you, then you'll turn back to me and cry out for help and I will rescue you. 
And you would think, okay, God is warning them, prophesying to them, telling them in his word, this is, this is what you need to watch out for, that you would take that for, you know, what it's worth and say, okay, guess what? We can be disciplined and we can give God praise and glory and we can seek the Lord and we don't have to go through that cycle. We can just give him all the praise when we are doing well. Doesn't that seem like that should happen? But here we are, 3,000 years later, this is about 1100 BC, and uh, we're still doing the same stupid thing over and over and over again. We, we, we do the same thing. We take God's blessings for granted. We start to think that I've achieved this on my own. Even our salvation that we have through what Jesus did for us on the cross, as you become a little bit more mature in your faith, what, what happens is you begin to sometimes think that, man, I just got this thing figured out. Look how well I'm doing, right? All those lost people who don't know Jesus, man, why don't they just get a clue and accept Jesus and then they'll, be, they'll have a life like I do. And, and we just kind of start thinking that it's my intelligence or something about me that's a little bit better, I deserve it more, right? And God says we we're forgetting over time how much we need him. How, how desperate we are for him. And so what happens in, in Samson's time, he is the last of the judges. So they've been through 400 years of this cycle. Okay, they've been going through this on and off for 400 years, and here they are again in, in the, basically the last cycle of this before we enter into the time of the kings. It says the people of Israel again did what was evil on the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So here's what they have. They have this wonderful promise. God says, I will be with you if you follow me. They also have this other thing that constantly happens. They did what was right in their own eyes. And the difference there is, instead of doing what was right in God's eyes, they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. That's where we have a problem. And the hero that they get in this last cycle is one of the worst heroes of scripture. <laughs> that, this is the cycle. It just keeps spinning downward and downward and downward. They're, they're, and then you finally look at, I don't necessarily recommend this, but if, <laughs> when you get through the, the, um, the story of Samson, the last couple of chapters of Judges is a horrific story of just how desperately evil Israel has become because they've turned away from God so far. That's, that's the story of, of Judges. God says, you have this wonderful privilege, but what's going to happen is you're going to take it so for granted that your, your story could have been so much better, it's going to turn out pretty bad. And here's part of the whole issue with us. God is saying the same thing to us that he says through Samson and all the rest of Scripture. You have choices to make. He told the Israelites from day one, you have blessings and you have curses. If you follow, here are the blessings. If you disobey and, and disregard and, and take for granted, then here are the curses. Your choice, you get to choose. He says, here's what you have to do. You have to set your heart on the right things. And you're going to be in a world that's going to tempt you to, to, to put your heart on the wrong things. And you have to be disciplined and you have to be certain, and you have to be faithful to follow what God has putting before you. 
and the world's going to tempt you and try to draw you, and you have to, you have to get away from that. So here's what happens with Samson. Um, he has this really unique and interesting thing. It says, there's a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, had no children, and the angel of the Lord. Now, whenever you see it says, the angel of the Lord, that's, that's a unique thing in Scripture. Now, a couple things. One is, how many people in Scripture had an angelic announcement about their birth? Anybody know? Who was in first service? <laughs> We went around and around for a while. Um, it's five, okay? And so Samson's one of only five people. Abraham got two. He got one for each of his sons. He got one for uh, Isaac and one for Ishmael. Then you have Samson, and then you have John the Baptist, and then you have Jesus. And that's it. The angel uh, announces five times uh, that there are these people that are going to be born that have this unique calling. And then you have like a couple that are prophesied by a prophet or a priest um, but there's just a very small group of people that have this thing about them that they're called, uh, that the angel announces it. But it says, the angel of the Lord. So now, not everybody interprets it this way. And if you don't agree, that's okay. We're not going to fight about it. But some people interpret, and I do, that the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, which means that Jesus, who is preexistent, who is second person of, of the Trinity, God, he's the one who's coming to announce this thing happening. There are several occasions in Scripture where you see the angel of the Lord equated with God, that they're the, they're the same. And so when it says the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord, you're, you're saying, okay, in my head, this, this is likely Jesus himself. Now, is that kind of significant? This is why, in one sense, I say Samson is like an antichrist because, in one sense, he had the ability, he had the calling, he had the gift, he had the, 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 uh, the possibility, the potential to be like a Christ, a figure of who the Messiah was ultimately going to be. In fact, when you see a lot of the people in Judges and, and all through Scripture, they are like a little shadow of who Jesus is ultimately going to be, who God is going to send to save the world. Because they're little saviors. They, they don't save everyone from their sin, but they do go in and they rescue people from a, a situation. They, they go in and they rescue the Israelites out of danger. They go in and they rescue people out of, out of harm's way in, in one small way or, or another. So they have these little prefiguring of Christ. And Samson was one who could have been a great figure to, to presuppose Christ. And, and ultimately what he ended up doing was uh, being one of the worst examples that we have in Scripture. Uh, and so you have Jesus announcing this, potentially, and then you have this interesting thing that he is one of only two people in Scripture that are perpetual Nazarite. Now, that may have just totally gone over your head what even a Nazarite is or what they do. Um, we'll explain that. But um, I've said before, I need to correct myself, okay? I've said before that there were three perpetual Nazarites in Scripture. Um, Samson, then you have Samuel who comes after Samson, just a generation, and then John the Baptist. Now, I've amended my uh, understanding of John the Baptist because John the Baptist was a priest. Now, how many of you like... <gasps> 
No? Okay. Um, so John the Baptist came from uh, two parents who both were descended from Aaron. And the line of Aaron is the priestly line. John the Baptist was a priest, which means that he was born consecrated to the Lord. That he, he, you, and so a Nazarite is consecrated to the Lord as a, a vow, a special vow. So a priest can't take a Nazarite vow because they're already consecrated. So you can't consecrate someone who's already consecrated. You can't be more consecrated to the Lord than, than your birth. And so John the Baptist, even though he didn't drink wine, he probably was not a Nazarite because he was a priest. Anybody care about this? Okay. So here's what happens. Samson and Samuel, the only people in Scripture that were perpetual Nazarites, means from birth till their death, they were Nazarites their whole life. Usually a Nazarite vow is like 30, 30 days. You take a vow, you consecrate yourself. It means to be devoted to the Lord for a time period, and then uh, after that, then you go through a ceremony, and then you're done. You've basically fulfilled your vow to the Lord. Paul did this. Um, in the book of Acts, it says that at one point in Paul's ministry, he'd taken a vow, and then he fulfilled his vow, and he shaved his head. To, and so we think that Paul took a Nazarite vow. So Nazarite had three special things about it. One was they uh, didn't shave their head. They didn't shave their beard. They never cut their hair or their beard. Um, so you think Duck Dynasty guys, they're all Nazarites. Um, maybe. I don't know. So, and then you have uh, a couple other things. They didn't drink wine. In fact, they didn't drink anything or eat anything that came from grapes. Not grape juice. They didn't eat raisin bran. They didn't eat grapes. They didn't any of that, okay? Um, they, they stayed away from all that. And mostly, though, it was they did not drink anything that was alcoholic. And then thirdly, they were not allowed to touch dead bodies, which... Probably not that hard. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Just say, don't, don't go near dead bodies. Okay, that's no problem. Um, so that was the three things about the Nazarite. But here's the thing is that um, from, from his birth, from his conception, the angel said he He's going to be consecrated to the Lord for his whole life for a special purpose. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to make him a Nazarite, so it's going to be obvious. Interesting, because I never really knew exactly what the point of the Nazarite vow was. I mean, you consecrate yourself to the Lord, that's fine. But what's the, what is the symbolism of the three things that they were to abstain from? One is wine. And wine in Scripture is worldly joy. It's the symbol for worldly joy, finding your joy, your happiness in the things of the world. A Nazarite was to find their joy in the Lord. It was, that was the issue. My, my joy comes from the Lord. My strength comes from the Lord. That, that their happiness, their fulfillment, their peace was to come from the Lord, which isn't that what we're all supposed to do? But it was something so obvious and apparent that everybody saw that there was something different. Then their hair being uh, never cut, their beard never being cut, was a sign of humility because in Scripture what it says is that long hair was a reproach to men. So if you had long hair, it was, it was a shameful thing. So for, for Samson to have long hair and long beard, never cut his hair or beard, today we would think that that's... Fine, right? I mean, that's whatever. People can do whatever they want. 
In fact, you know, you have long hair and long beard, like you're kind of you're kind of tough, right? And we have any, I don't see anybody with long hair in here. We have no long-haired guys in here? <laughs> Guess not. When I was in high school, man, I had long hair down to the, I know it's hard to imagine, down to the middle of my back, and I did not have a huge forehead either. <laughs> and goatee, I was like Nazarite. But it, Back then, it was a, like a shameful thing. Was, and so what is it telling us? It was his identity was in the Lord. His pride was not in himself. His pride was in his relationship with God. His, he was personally humble, supposed to be personally humble. Then the third thing about the purity of, of uh, not touching a dead body, it's, it's this issue of the purity, the consecration, the, the cleanliness, the righteousness, the holiness is set apart for God. I find my joy in the Lord. I find my, my pride in the Lord. I find my purity in the Lord. That was the issue. It was completely to be directed to God. That was the intention of the Nazarite. But you have Samson, and if you know some of his story, you know how he failed at this constantly. Like he, was, he should have been much more devoted to the Lord, and yet everywhere you turn, he's always trying to find fulfillment and joy and happiness and pleasure in the things of the world. And so what does he do right away? He wants to marry a Philistine girl, which is against the law because they are not to marry people of other religions, but he wants her, and God's going to use this as an occasion to discipline the Philistines. He's going to send Samson in like a juggernaut into destroy and disrupt the Philistine nation. They're ruling over Israel, and God's going to use Samson to, to shake that up. And so he goes down, and you remember the first thing that happens. He goes down to uh, Timnah, and he's trying to arrange his marriage, and a lion comes roaring out of the, the bushes and tries to attack him, right? You remember the story? And what does he do? Hand-to-hand combat with the lion. Anybody been to the zoo and seen a lion? I, I saw a lion um, at a taxidermy shop. And because, uh, you know, at a zoo, you don't get too close. But, I mean, this thing is huge. I mean, the head on this thing is massive. And the claws are like big oven mitts. Like, they're just gigantic. You can't even, like, fathom, like, being approached by this beast Like, there's a reason why this is like the king of the jungle. There's no predator that's preying on a lion. And Samson goes up against this thing hand to hand, and it says that he tore it like like you would a young goat. How many of you have torn a young goat? (laughs) I I looked this up. I don't recommend it. There's some weird stuff online. But (laughs) I'm like, is that a thing? Is that something that people do? I didn't quite understand the analogy there. But what was going on is that what, he, what it's saying is that Samson overpowered the lion like an ordinary man could overpower a young goat. Like this is just how powerful the Holy Spirit on him enabled him to be, to just tear this thing apart. So he goes down, makes arrangements, and he goes back, and there's a beehive in the carcass of this lion. He scoops it out, and he gives it to his parents, and they don't know where it comes from and all that stuff. What happens next is, is interesting. He goes back, he marries this girl, and there's this feast and this festival and this process, and, and he makes a wager with the people that, 
basically, he doesn't know these people. They're not his friends, but the, the bride's family has arranged for him to have attendance, okay? And he bets him, like he tells him the riddle, out of the, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet, right? That whole riddle. And uh, they are, they're like, oh, we can't figure this out. They finally pressure the wife to tell them the answer. She pressures Samson to give her the answer. She gives it to them. She give, and then, so he has to go and like beat up 30 guys or kill them. We don't know for sure. Take their clothes, give them to these guys. And then he runs off back home in a rage. His, her father thinks that Samson hates her. So he marries her off to his uh, best man, I don't know why she needed to be married off so quickly, but apparently she had to be married that day. And so Samson goes home, comes back. He's going to visit his wife, and she's already married to somebody else. And he's, so he, what he does is he gets 300 foxes, ties them tail to tail uh, by pairs, puts a torch in there, and sends them out to burn down the fields. Remember this? Now, what does that tell you? And here's what I think it tells you. One is that not only is Samson strong, he's also clever. He's smart. You don't catch 300 foxes by being strong. You, you have to be ingenious to do that. So Samson is powered by the Holy Spirit to be strong. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be smart, but he's also foolish. He, he's not wise. And so that he burns down their fields. They get mad. They're like, why did he do this? It's because we married her off to him. And so the townspeople burn to alive, the, the wife and the father and the family. Samson finds out about it. He beats all those people up, which I don't know how many people that is, but it says that he beats them up hip to thigh, which I don't know if that means he broke their legs or what. It's just kind of a weird saying in Scripture. Somebody could look this up and find out. Maybe I couldn't figure it out. So then he leaves, and there are like a thousand Philistines that come to pursue him. And what he does is that he's in the land of Judah, and there's 3,000 of these, the, the, his people who say, what are you doing? These people rule over us. You're causing problems. You're going to get us killed. And he says, as long as you don't kill me yourself, you can hand me over to them. So they bind him with ropes, and they send him off to the Philistines, and they just break apart like they're nothing. And he kills a thousand Philistines with the, the jawbone of a donkey. A thousand. The power of the Holy Spirit within him to be that powerful, that strong, that invincible. Kills a thousand people. Then, story goes on, he judges Israel for 20 years. And it doesn't say he really delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. It just says that he, he was kind of like a presence in, in Israel. He was there... Um, he delivered them from some of the problems that they had, but he didn't really rescue them. He just kind of gave them a little bit of breathing room. And then what happens next is he visits a prostitute, and overnight, um, the people of the town, they're like, oh, here's Samson. We can get him. We can kill him. And he gets up in the middle of the night. He goes out. He takes the, the gates of the city off the hinges, and he carries them up the hill and puts them on the hill, and he leaves. So we have this guy, he's just like this random person just doing mighty acts, but really accomplishing nothing. Then he falls in love with Delilah, and this is where the story, you know, we all kind of pick it up, right? He falls in love with Delilah, 
And she's bribed by the Philistine rulers to tell uh, them how he's so strong and what they can do to overpower him. And so she begins to try to coax him into telling him the secret or her the secret of his strength. And finally, after three times of, of um, him lying to her, which I never quite understood if when she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he broke loose whatever the thing was that he told her to do, if, if they were actually in the room or if they, you know, weren't really there. I mean, they were there, but they didn't come out, and she just said that, and he broke free. And, like, because you would think if they were there three times, and, he, and she's setting him up like this, like, he, he would get a clue. You know what I mean? Like, if, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me kind of thing, right? But three times, and finally the fourth time, she just kept, I mean, she nagging him over and over and on and on and he finally just is like, okay, finally, okay, this is the deal. If you shave my head, I'll be as weak as anybody else, right? And here's the thing. We look at that and you say, is that true? Is that really where his strength was in his hair? But here's, here's what happens. See, <laughs> this is where we get mixed up. We think we know, but he didn't know. But he did know. His strength wasn't necessarily in his hair. His strength was in the Holy Spirit. But his strength was, was according to the consecration, that he was dedicated to the Lord, that he was a Nazarite for life. And part of that vow was, in, in the Nazarite vow, when that vow was over, you shaved your head and you burned the hair in a ceremony. And then the vow's over. You're no longer consecrated at that point. So he actually knew something about what the, the source of, of his strength was. It wasn't really in his hair. It was in his dedication or consecration to the Lord. And when that hair got shaved off, he finally told her how to do it. Then what happened was he was outside of the protection and the power of, of the Holy Spirit. So they could attack him and overpower him and kill him. And what they do, they grab him, gouge his eyes out, just... Why? (laughs) And he's blind and he has to go and be in jail for the rest of his life. And you think about all these things and here's this mighty hero of scripture. What is his story really about? And when you step back and you look at what's really going on, I had to try to understand a couple of things. One is that he... His story is unique in a way, but it's also not unique in a lot of other ways. And here's what I mean, is that God had um, called him to do something for him, to achieve God's purposes. He had set him apart. He had dedicated him for that service. He, he made him. He knew who he was, and he loved him, and he, he gave him the power of his spirit, and he gave him a purpose. That's not different than anyone else in this room. God made you. He, he designed you. He knows who you are. He knows who you were from the day you were conceived and before that. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your mind, how you're made, how, how you're gifted, how you're weak, how you're strong, what your purpose is, what your potential is. He, he loved you enough to die for you, that he would send his own son to be a sacrifice for you. He, he has a plan for your life that he knows and that he's willing to share with you. He's, an, he's 
going to give you the power of his Holy Spirit. When you call on Christ and you give your life to Jesus, what happens is he says at that moment that you're a new creature in Christ, that all the potential that you had is now fulfilled in your relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit in you is the same Holy Spirit that was in Samson that gave him the power to kill a thousand Philistines. Same Holy Spirit that's in you that gives you the understanding of God's word, gives you the power to serve, it gives you the ability to be uh, convicted about sin, who, who gives you the wisdom to know how to live your life according to God's will. That same Holy Spirit was the one that raised Jesus from the dead. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Peter to walk on water. Same Spirit that empowered Paul to go on mission trips and preach the word and heal people and raise people from the dead. I mean, that same Holy Spirit is what is living within each and every one of us. And God has called you into his service. He says, I have a place for you in my plan and for the world. And you have to decide on a daily basis whether you're going to seek out God's will or you're going to seek out the, the pleasure and the joy and the fulfillment and the peace that the world has to offer. How much pleasure does the world have to offer? How much peace does the the world have to offer? I'm telling you that there's a lot of salesmanship going on in the world and very little fulfillment. And the world around us that doesn't really know that there is anything more in life than money and sex and alcohol and uh, career and hobbies and whatever else the world has to offer, they, they're always looking for that thing that will make them happy. What, what is it that will make me happy? Is it another spouse? Maybe the one I have isn't going to do it for me. I need to find a different one. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Um, it's the house I have isn't big enough. It's not nice enough. It's not in the right neighborhood. Or maybe I need another house in another part of the country where I can go to and escape the winter. I actually don't mind that idea. But if I just had this other thing, if I had a nicer this, if I was, if I was a little bit more uh, advanced in my career, if I could succeed in this way, if I could have this kind of a family, if I could have this kind of a body, if I could have this kind of a education, if, if, if I could just... And we're always pursuing these things of the world, thinking that our happiness comes from the world. And, and what the world offers is like, yes, come and, and buy this and do this and be here and, and take this and smoke this and drink that. And if you just do these things, then you'll be happy. You can find some kind of peace and we'll drug ourselves into some kind of a stupor because what's happening is that the world doesn't actually offer peace or joy or fulfillment or contentment. The world doesn't actually have the ability to give you that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in the world. And so we're always consuming all these things or trying to do all these things, thinking that it will finally be happy. And when we realize that we're not happy, what do we do? We try to numb ourselves out from our unhappiness. And we get into social media or Netflix or pornography or drugs or alcohol or relationships or something that will kind of get us to a point where we just don't really care that much. If I could just somehow not have to worry about how unhappy I am. And all the, time, all the while, the Lord is over here like, come, 
What you're looking for, I have. What you want, I'm able to give you. Jesus says, seek first what? The kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. Samson didn't get it. He, he thought that the world would, would somehow, a relationship, a woman, would somehow fulfill this, this thing within him that he wanted. And he, he had it from birth and he never pursued it. He had a calling from birth that he never actually fulfilled. He just ignored it. Took it for granted. It was never that, that valuable to him. And so here we are, 3,000 years later, are we making the same mistakes? As Christians, okay, we can talk about the world all we want, but as Christians, we begin to accept the, the gift of God, right? Salvation, forgiveness, hope, eternal life. And then we, we kind of take that in one hand and then we try to grab the world with the other. Like, okay, that's fine. I, I'm glad I get to go to heaven, but I still want all the things of the world. And what's happening is that we are drowning ourselves with the pursuit of the world and we're not actually peaceful. We're not actually joyful. We're not actually content because we're trying to hold on to both. And he says, you got to give up on that stuff and you got to put your hope in Christ. And then he says, all these things will be added unto you. And we misinterpret that. We think that that means if I... If I have a relationship with God, then God will give me a house, and he'll give me a family, and he'll give me money, and he'll give me health, and I'll have all these things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I have Christ, I'm content. I can have things. I can have a nice family. I can have a nice house, and I can have that stuff. My joy doesn't come from that. My peace, my contentment, my joy comes from my relationship with God. And then, guess what? All these things added unto you means I actually get to enjoy the rest of my life because I'm not seeing my identity in all those pursuits. I see my purpose in the world to get the gospel out. How, how do I get to help other people to know Christ so that they can stop drowning in their pursuit of worldly things that will never fulfill them? So here we are, we get to tell people about Jesus, and we get to let people know that there's more hope in the, in the world through Christ than the world itself ever had to offer. And so Samson's story is uh, <laughs> it's a cautionary tale. What happens is at the end, um, he has to perform for the Philistines. I don't know what he does, sing or dance or what. And then he's like, okay, put me up against the pillar. So there's archaeology in that part of the world where they actually have determined that this is how they built their buildings, that there are two central pillars in the middle. And he says, put me where I can feel the pillars. And so he stands there and he prays, God, help me to avenge the Philistines for my two eyes. <laughs> and God gives him the power and he pushes the pillars over. You know the story. And then 3,000 people die in that one event. And here's the thing is that he never got it. God had grace and mercy and continued to show up, and he just never understood. He never grasped what God was doing. He, he had, here's what he had. He had a little bit of faith. He had just a little bit of faith that God could. He never put that, that understanding into his own purpose. And, and here's what I'm saying. Don't make that mistake. Don't believe that just a little bit of God, but I don't really matter. He called you. 
He's gifted you. He loves you. He made you. He has a purpose for you. You get to have both of these things working together. It is God and glory and all his wonder and power, and I'm included in that. And when you understand your inclusion in that, then your story gets to be a lot bigger than it ever was before. Amen? Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and your power and your goodness and grace that uh, continues, Lord, even when we fail, Lord. So many of the, the people in Scripture are, are messed up. <laughs> they have some good, they have some weaknesses, they have some understanding, they have some misunderstanding, Lord. I don't know that we're any different, but we want to learn from what they experienced, from what you showed us, from what happened in their lives, Lord, that we might have better outcome, that we might be used to our full potential for your glory. Would you give us the power? Would you give us that Holy Spirit that moves so mightily in in Samson? Would you give us that same spirit to move mightily in our time, to see great things happen, Lord, in our community, in our families, in our workplaces, in our, our, our town, Lord? Would you do a mighty work through us? Why you choose to use us in these things, we we don't know. But you invite us to be part of it, and you call us to be included. And so, Lord, help us to respond for your glory, for our sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. um, One of the things that keeps just uh, coming at me is this issue of the pursuit of the things of this world. Um, and here's something that we have to understand. You have to intentionally lay that thing down. You have to lay it down. You've got you to gotta recognize, call it by name, and, and understand that you tell yourself and you tell the Lord, that thing that I've been trying to pursue for my happiness is not going to make me happy. God, I'm going to give that up as a sacrifice to you. I'll lay that thing down at the altar and I want you in, in, in that place. And like I said, that can be a scary thing, but the wonderful thing is, he says, seek ye first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. You're not, you're not going to lose anything by giving it up. Amen? But some of us need to, with an open hand, say, God, I give that to you. Let's stand and sing.